Okay, here we go. Um, I don't know how many of you have experienced this kind of, uh, I'm going to take this out, this kind of dynamic before, uh, but when you go out to, to eat uh, with a friend, or perhaps it's a parent, um, or someone close to you, uh, there's this ritual that, uh, that we seem to go through, and, and it happens, or it's a routine, and there's no avoiding it sometimes. You, you go to reach for your wallet or your, your pocketbook, and uh, maybe at the same time as your, as your friend goes to reach for their, their, their pocketbook, and immediately there's this, there's this tension at play. You can see that they're reaching for their wallet, but, but you have to sort of pretend that you don't see them reaching for their wallet because we have to go through this dance. <laughs> we have to go through this ritual. And now, now you see the bill is coming, and you see the server place it on the table. Now you have a couple of choices at this point, right? A couple of choices. Before the server puts the bill on the table, you can stop them and say, oh, can you split the bill? And that's fine. Maybe there's something that goes off in the back of your head that says, uh, gosh, I hope my suggestion of splitting the bill didn't come as a surprise. Did they think that I was going to pay for it? <laughs> and now that I've suggested that we're paying, that, I'm, uh, that we split the bill, uh, I know it was my idea, but I never said I was going to pay for it, right? All these things. Maybe it's just me. I don't know if you all go through something similar like this. It could just be me. But uh, um, that, that's, that's, that's one possibility. After all, you know, you were both reaching for your wallet, uh, so there seems to be an expectation that, that both of us are, are going to contribute, right? There's another possibility, though. You're both reaching for your wallet or your pocketbook. The bill makes it all the way to the table without the, can you split it in two? And now that bill is sitting on the table and reach the table without that interruption. So what happens next? You can say, oh, no, I I've got this one. Let, let me get this one. Uh, you, you put your card away. Uh, so, you, so you can say that unless you came in there with some sort of expectation that, that they should pay, right? Oh, well, they asked me here, right? They should have to pay. I, mean, I didn't even choose this restaurant. And if I knew I was going to have to pay for my own, wheat, my own meal, I, I would have picked Arby's, not this place, right? Is it just me, right? <laughs> See, and all these things are going through your head. And, uh, and as, as for many times as you've, you've done this dance, this sort of ritual, there's really no way of dealing with it smoothly. It always seems clumsy, right? But now every once in a while, every once in a while, you go have a meal with someone and the bill comes and, and, and the, the person that you're with nearly jumps out of their chair to, to get the check. And it catches you off guard because you, you really honestly and truly didn't expect them to pay for the meal. And even when they jump forward to pay for it, there's, there's something inside of you that says, oh, no, they, they, I, I can't let this happen, right? They, they can't pay for me. I don't want them to pay for me. And you think that because had you known that they were going to pay for you, you, you certainly wouldn't have got the drink. <laughs> I would have gotten water. And, and I certainly wouldn't have ordered the filet. I would have gotten the salad, let alone the appetizer that I would. I wouldn't have ordered all this had I known that they were going to jump forward and pay, Right. And so, so, so then you, you try and, and sort of diffuse the situation and you say something like, oh, well, let, me, let me pay for my portion. And like, no, 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 I got this. I got it. Your money's no good here, I've been told before. Your money's no good here. And, and then they, they tell you absolutely not, okay? And so you make one last attempt to contribute. What's the next line that comes next? I got this. At least let me cover the tip. At least let me cover the tip. And they say, no, 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 you, you, don't, you, you, you can't pay this. You, I've got this. I've got this uh, all to myself. And so... There's one last ditch effort, one last thing you can say to try and uh, um, make yourself feel better. <laughs> and you say, I'll get it next time. 
I'll get it next time. Okay, you can get it next time. Now suddenly, now suddenly the scales are balanced again. All is right in the world because I, I don't want someone paying for me. I want to pay my own way. I want to pay my own way. Come on in. Uh, and, and again, now, now you feel like you, you, you can rest because uh, you, you've settled it. And, uh, uh, and in the future, somehow you're going to balance the scales of the restaurant injustice may, that may have had, or not have just occurred. And I bring this up because I think some, sometimes, sometimes that this is how we think about salvation. Uh, we as Christians, we have certain talking points, certain uh, turns of phrases that we know are right and we like to repeat. And one of those phrases is, salvation from Jesus is a gift. It's a free gift. And while that is true, it is a free gift to you, all right? Someone had to pay for it. Someone had to pay, despite the fact that we say it's free, we know it's free, we still have this tendency to want to say, well, at least let me pay my fair share. Let me pay for my portion. I want, I want to contribute, okay? So today, we're going to talk a little bit about good works. And, and this was inspired by a question that was asked at the tail end of our, our lesson last week, there was a question that came up about good works. And that question came up when I said something to the effect of, this was, this was the triggering point here. Jesus, and again, I, I really want you to learn this, I, and I don't, I don't tire of saying it because I, I feel like we don't, we don't fully understand this uh, as, as Christians, generally speaking. We have a good grasp on the fact that our sins are forgiven, okay? But there's more to it. So I said, Jesus not only had to die for your sins, but he had to live for your righteousness, Okay? He had to die for your sins and live for your righteousness. And that was, I even talked, I even followed up with uh, the person who asked the question. Uh, and, uh, and he clarified that, yeah, I, I've heard about Jesus died for your sins, but the living for your righteousness, that's the part that I, um, I'm not sure I've heard too much before. Okay? And I said that in reference to the idea that it's not enough, it's not enough for you to be sinless. It's not enough for you to be sinless. You have to be sinless and righteous. Okay, so how does that work? And how do good works factor into all of this? Because it all ties together here. It all ties together. Now, I want to make it clear from the jump what I mean by sinless and righteous. I'll repeat what I said. It's not enough for you to be sinless, but you have to be sinless and righteous. Now, to be clear, what I mean by sinless is that to stand before a God that is Holy, 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 three times holy, you have to be sinless. You might hear that and think, so, so my sins have to be forgiven. And yes, if my sins are forgiven, then I'll be sinless. And to that I'll say, well, sort of, you, because your sins don't just disappear. They still have to be paid for. Someone has to pick up the check, as it were. But I, but I want to focus on the second part, the righteous part. I want you to hear me say this. What I am not saying is that in order to stand before a God that is holy, 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 you have to be sinless. Now, go and be righteous. It's not what I'm saying, okay? I'm saying to stand before a God that is holy, 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 you have to be sinless, completely without sin, and completely righteous. I don't mean you have to be a pretty good person, I don't mean you have to be a, a, an upstanding member of the community. I mean you need to have perfect righteousness. And what does that mean? What level of righteousness do I need? Let me point out Matthew 5, 20. 
which says this. This is Jesus uh, talking. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Just so we're clear, okay? In terms of good behavior, in terms of being an upstanding member of the community, it was hard to surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. That was hard. They were rule followers, okay? But be that as it may, Jesus is saying, you have to surpass that level of righteousness, okay? Uh, surpass it. How much? Well, well, we got to back up even further uh, to start to understand how much we're talking about. Back up to verse 18, and we'll come to a verse that we talked about last week as well. It says this, Matthew 5, 18. Listen to, listen to the depth. Listen to how far he's, he's talking about here. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes, I'm not, I'm not even saying break, whoever relaxes one of the, the least of these commandments. I'm not even talking about murder here. I'm not even talking about adultery. I'm not even talking about the big ones, right? I'm just saying whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, which, you know, that sounds, well, that's not so bad. Least in the, least in the that's not a compliment. That's not a good thing, okay, to be least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, now feel the gravity of that again. Whoever, we're talking relaxes, not even breaks, right? Uh, we're talking uh, the, the least of these commandments, not even the big ones. In other words, here's the question. What, what level of righteousness is required of you? In a word, perfect. Perfect. Perfect righteousness. In order to stand before a God that is holy, 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 and if you have to, we can back up a couple of lessons. And I, that was one of the first lessons we did in this semester was talking about the holiness of God and what that means, okay? That's, that's holy probably even beyond what you're capable of thinking in terms of separateness, in terms of how, how far removed we are from the goodness of God, the, the rightness of God. We're, we're so far removed from a holy, holy God, okay? Not only do you have to be perfectly sinless, but you have to be perfectly Righteous. What level of righteousness? The maximum. Whatever the maximum is, okay? Why do I need that level of righteousness? Because that's how holy God is. God is so holy that it's not enough just to be sinless, but you have to be good. Really, really, really good. The maximum good because he is the maximum good, if I can put it that way. And that's the requirement. You know, how, how do we get both sinlessness and perfect righteousness? There's only one person. There's only one person who was perfectly sinless and perfectly righteous. Only one. So our only hope is to have his status of sinlessness and righteousness applied to us. That's our only hope. Let me illustrate it this way, and then I'll, I'll open up the floor for, for, uh, for some uh, additional um, clarification or, or questions or whatever. When I was a young boy, I had a real problem with lying, Okay. My mom worried about uh, that for many years because I got to the point where I would lie and then I would, I would be confronted about lying and, and I would dig in all the more. I'd double down. I'd double down on the lie. I'll give you one, one brief example. My mom would ask me something like, uh, uh, have you done all your homework? Have you done all your homework? Do you have any assignments that are due tomorrow? 
And being a young boy whose heart's desire was to never do any work but only play all the time, I would tell her, no, I don't. I do not have any homework. Nothing that is due tomorrow, okay? Now, because I had earned such a reputation for not telling the truth, she would doubt my answer. I suppose I had a tell. I don't know if you, any of you all play poker. I do not. But from what I understand, you can have a tell in poker. So if you're bluffing, if you're bluffing with your cards, oh, every time he, he bluffs with his cards, he's got a twitch in his eye or, or he, he pulls on his ear or he scratches his head or something like that. I suppose when I was around my mom and I would, I would tell her a lie, uh, either that or just miraculous gift of God, she could say, you're lying. I know you're lying, right? But here's the thing. I, I would still double down. Uh, any other child at this point might have the opportunity, okay, my mom's got me. I'm going to come clean. Okay, 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 okay. I, I do have homework. In fact, I do have something due tomorrow, okay? But instead of that, I would just say, uh, oh, no, I, I don't have, whatever tell you think you're seeing here, you're misinformed because I do not have any homework. Now, now my mom brings out the big guns. What if I were to call your teacher on the phone because I have her phone number? And she did. <laughs> she had her phone number. I could just call her up and ask her, does Lyric have any homework? Busted, right? Oh, no, I'm not going down without a fight. And so I would have the audacity to say something like, Mom, go right ahead. Call her up. Call her up. In fact, I'll bring you the telephone. I'll br- and I'll dial the number for you. And now I think I'm wearing out my mom. I think I'm wearing her down, right? To make a long story short, okay, you know, I, I, would, I would do that. It's a lie. It's a lie on top of a lie. I'm lying like a liar. That's what I was doing. And to make a long story short, I sometimes like to say that uh, I outgrew my lying stage. But I think, it's, I think there's more to it than that. I think there's more to it. You see, as I, as I grew in faith, I came to realize that, yes, to lie is wrong. I think we can all agree on that. To lie is wrong. Okay, And if I lie, if I lie, I can feel the weight of it. I feel convicted. Thanks be to God. But get this. I also understand that it's not enough to just not lie. It's not enough. It's not enough just to not lie. And I think we're all aware of this. And I think that if we're ever in a relationship with anybody, you know that's true. You know it's, 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 it's not enough to just not tell lies. There's more to it. There's more to it than that, right? It's one thing to deceive someone by lying. That is wrong. But our calling goes beyond not lying. What is our calling? Our calling as people who who live in the Lord, who understand, who have been redeemed, who have been inhabited by the Holy Spirit, our calling is to be beacons of truth, to reflect the nature of the one who is the embodiment of truth. To, to keep your mouth shut will be enough to keep you from lying, but you won't be able to speak the, the truth if your mouth is shut. And sometimes not to speak the truth doesn't cut it. Well, as long as I don't lie, as long as I don't lie, no holiness, that's what we were talking about a moment ago. Remember, holiness, holiness, which is what God is, demands more. That's what holiness is. Again, it's not enough to just be good. It's not enough to just be holy. What the scriptures tell us and describe God is that he's holy, holy, holy. So again, it's not enough to just not lie in this example. 
It's to be a beacon and to be a representative of the truth. Okay? If I never, ever lie to my kids, yes, that would be a good thing. But if I never give them the truth, I'm failing as a parent. I'm failing. So you see, there are two sides to obedience, okay? And, and, I, and I like to, you and I, if, if, if we have any hope of standing before God, we need perfect obedience, perfect obedience. And again, remember, as I say that, don't leave here thinking, oh, I have to be perfectly obedient. I want you to be. But again, we stand in, in the presence of God with the, the record of Christ draped over us, his perfect obedience. That's what makes us acceptable, okay? But that's what we need. We need perfect obedience, you and I stand before God, uh, we need perfect obedience, and there's two sides to it. There's, there's passive obedience and active obedience. Now, before we go too far down this, 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 uh, this conversation, passive and active, we tend to think of passive as like a, uh, you know, I'm just some uh, passive aggressiveness. If there's one thing I hate, it's, <laughs> it's when someone is passive aggressive. Ask my wife. I, if I'm ever passive aggressive, with she always she always calls me out on it. Because, again, it's, it's, it's your... your to be passive, uh, it's, it's just to say, well, just, just mean what you say, right? But that's not what we're talking about here. To be passive, I want you to think along the lines of the word uh, passion. When we say the passion of Christ, what do you think of when you think of the passion of Christ? Have you heard that phrase? What does that mean? His, you know what that means? The passion of Christ? Huh? His, yes, his death, his suffering. So liken that word passive obedience to, to suffering, okay? So there's, there's passive obedience and active obedience, okay? This, of course, is reflective of what, what uh, yeah, Jesus, Jesus is passive and, and active obedience. Jesus was actively obedient in, in his uh, will of God obeying work. He was, he was passively obedient in his penalty-bearing work, paying for sins, Okay? The whole of his life was consumed with both. So we don't want to just say, oh, his, his passive obedience was limited to his, his actions on the cross. No, the whole of his life was, was, was consumed with, with active obedience and, and his passive uh, obedience in, in how he suffered for our sin and how he was actively righteous. Both are necessary to be pleasing in the sight of God. Both are necessary to be holy. And here's the payoff. Because of our union with Christ... His sinlessness is passed along to us and his righteousness is passed along to us too. We carry his status in, in, in regards to being sinless and righteous. Our record, our record of sins, uh, nor our record of righteousness factors into the transaction. We don't, we don't cover the meal. We don't cover the tip. We don't pay next time. It's all him. It's Christ's record of sin and righteousness uh, that he's passed along to us. So we stand before the Father robed in Christ, full stop, Nothing else needed, okay? Do you get it? Do you get it? Do you really understand what I mean by holiness, which is what we need to be in fellowship with God? Any, any thoughts or comments or, or observations with that? Let that sink in. You understand? Any questions on that? Anything unclear about it? Because again, if you understand, if you think about what holiness is, you know, it's, it's not enough to just not sin. Holiness way up here. You have to be sinless and, on top of that, really, really, really good, too. Think about, think about what Jesus did through the whole of his ministry. He didn't just go around not sinning. He went around doing good things. Good things, yes, that were reflective of the fact that uh, when he healed someone, that wasn't just not sinning. When he healed someone, he was reversing sin's effects. 
you know, uh, giving us a foretaste of, of what it will be like in you know, ultimate glory, that he has the power to reverse sin's effects, that's not just not sinning. That's doing active good. That's being actively righteous. And that is what God demands. Not just not sinning, but even that active righteous part, okay? Uh, so, so really, and if you have any, any questions or, or if that's not making any more sense, please come talk to me. I'd love to, to keep talking about it more with you. But um, um, now, having said all that, if Jesus has paid our bill, if Jesus was, was actively obedient on my behalf and, and passively obedient on, on our behalf, he suffered for us, uh, what part do good works play in all this? That was all set up. That was all set up to talking about good works, okay? How, how does that factor into all this? If my bill has been paid, as it were, of what use is it to be so concerned about telling the truth? If my bill has been paid, of what use is it to to go to church? Of what use is it to, to put in a hard day's work? Of what use is it to, to refrain from sexual immorality? Again, if my bill has been paid, what difference does it make whether or not I do any of these things? Someone want to give us a, an answer to that? A suggestion? What's your understanding? If you have a non-believing friend say, well, if Jesus really paid it all, if my status before him is right right now, why do I have to do anything good? Okay, I'm going to give you this uh, little microphone, okay? As soon as it... I usually tell my kids is that if we will naturally want to do the good works because we're following Jesus, not because we have to, but that just naturally to us. It's a natural byproduct of an inner truth that's taking place, yeah? Someone else have any thoughts? Anything you want to add? Hold on, I'm going to give you this little microphone so this appears like you're going to be famous now because you're on this recording. <laughs> because, because we love him so much, that is what we want to do. Because we love him so much, that's what we want to do. Not out of obligation, but because we have a true desire to reflect the one that we love. Yeah? Okay. Anyone else? These are great, these answers. Yep. Hold on, hold on. Many might come in your way. Well, Christ says, without works, faith is dead. Because out of the faith that we have, we prove it. But we're working out of our faith, not again. Do you know that Martin Luther initially, when he, when, when he read that in the book of James, uh, bristled? Because he, he wanted to make sure that we weren't saying, without works, faith is dead. He wanted to make sure we were putting the cart in front of the horse. But as you read through the, the context of James, you begin to understand even more that, yeah, it, what he's speaking of is, is that if there's not fruit to show, if there's not fruit to show as a, as a, a reflection of your faith, uh, it is dead. If there's no fruit, the, the tree is dead. Okay, and that's, uh, that's uh, the, what James is, is laboring to tell us there. Okay, so basically, uh, in a word, um, about a year and a half ago, I, I taught a lesson on sanctification. We're going to review some of that right here because we do good works as a part of our sanctification. Okay? And, uh, and when that, we did that lesson about a year and a half ago, I put the, the definition of sanctification up here as defined by the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I put it up here again to help us illustrate what in the world good works are all about in the life of a Christian. Okay? Um, again, a Christian who's been totally and completely justified and adopted before God without a single contribution from us, right? So here's what's going on with sanctification. Here's what it is. Sanctification, it's, sanctification in a word is, is the process of being made holy, okay? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace 
whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. In other words, so it's not just, uh, it's not just my thoughts that are being renewed. It, it's everything. It's, it's completeness. Everything, everything, everything is subject to being renewed, to being made new. We are renewed in the whole, in, whole man after the image of God. And we are enabled, and this is a key phrase here, more and more, more and more. So in other words, it doesn't happen instantly. The moment you're saved, you're not, boom, sanctified. It's a process for the rest of your life where more and more you die into sin, passive obedience, and live unto righteousness, active. Okay? Now, first thing, again, we want to point out is that sanctification, it says sanctification is a work. When the Westminster uh, Confession talks about justification, that's your, the proclamation that you are right before God, in adoption, that you're immediately adopting the family of God, it classifies that as an act, an act of God's free grace, where it's a declaration made and it's done. Whereas this, it says it's a work, signifying the fact that this is an ongoing process. Okay? It's a, it's a work. Um, but here, here's as sanctification is described, again, as a work. Ongoing process where you more and more die into sin and live under righteousness. So, so if that's true, if that's what sanctification is, then tell me, you've already done this. I just have this written in my notes, but once more, what are good works? Good works are nothing more than the evidence that this is happening, that this is taking place. It's evidence. Good works are the evidence that more and more you're dying into sin and living under righteousness. Good works are, I think someone said the word byproduct. Did someone say byproduct, I think? Are the byproduct of an inward reality that Christ and what Christ has done to you. Good works are a byproduct of God's abiding present in you. Okay, okay, okay. So if it's a natural byproduct of a reality that's taking place within me, why does it always feel like it's, it's, a, it's not a natural byproduct? You know? Why does it feel sometimes like I'm, I'm having to force myself to do good works? Why is it, why is it so hard not to sin? Well, why, do, why do I have to make myself read the Bible? Uh, why do I struggle so much to love my neighbor? Why does it still feel like I'm having to manufacture these good works? Just me, right? I hope you can identify with that. Does anyone have an answer for that? Why, why does it feel like... If it's a natural byproduct, sometimes it doesn't feel natural. Sometimes I, have, I feel like I've got to make myself do this. Todd has his hand in the back, and I'm going to give you the tiny microphone. So, Scripture talks about that war uh, of sin, and it talks about the evil. And so, uh, although we are working out our sanctification through our life, we're also fighting with that throughout. What, what a great... What a great image that that paints for us. It's a war. Todd just described it as a war. Okay, so uh, the fact that you have to force yourself to do anything, well, that's, that's a byproduct of the war, right? That's a byproduct of the war that, that, uh, that is happening here, okay? Um, here's the payoff. The payoff is that God gives what God requires, okay? God gives what God requires. You'll notice in our definition that it still says it's a work of God's free grace, okay? In other words, God doesn't just demand that you start producing good works. Go, start, start reflecting the, the reality of the truth that's within you. Go do it now, okay? He, he creates a heart that grows in the direction of spiritual maturity. 
God helps Christians to mature into people who, who do and enjoy doing good works. It's a lot like uh, raising a baby. Okay, when babies are first born, oh, almost everything is a fight. <laughs> almost everything is a struggle. Oh my word, both our kids, right from the get-go, they were so hard. They were always crying. All of them, both of them. I'm saying all of them, all two of them. And they cried during the day. They cried during the night. They cried when they ate, right? And here's the thing about babies. They can't do a thing for themselves. Not one thing. They can't do a thing for themselves. Babies can't do one thing on their own. But over time, over the course of years, they start doing things on their own. The same is true for sanctification. It's a more and more process, just like raising a baby. I love the visual imagery of the, this verse in Ezekiel. In its original context, he's talking about the wayward, wandering people of the Old Testament that he would one day bring back and restore. But that, that interpretation telescopes out to what he's doing in your heart and mind through the work of Jesus when he said this in Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So, so while it's a commandment that God gives, there's an expectation that you do good works. Go out and do this. But it's by the Holy Spirit that we're enabled to do so. And again, like a baby, when you teach a baby to walk... At first, you're doing all the work. You're holding them up. You got them by the hands and the arms, and you're making them, them, them go along like that. But more and more, they build the muscles, and they develop balance. But at some point, you know, those legs have to start moving on their own. They start moving on their own, and you let them go. The Holy Spirit enables you to start walking. But make no mistake about it, the expectation is that you start walking. As much as we love our children, we would be doing them a tremendous disservice if we just decided to carry them around for their whole lives, you know, even though they had healthy legs, okay? And, and the whole process of sanctification is to mold you and shape you and craft you into the image of Christ. The whole purpose is that you start to more and more resemble Christ, who wasn't just sinless, but he was really, a really, really good person too. And good people don't just not sin. But they're actively good too. Listen to what Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, 21 to 24. This is what sanctification is. Assuming that you've heard about him, Jesus, and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And again, this is an action. He's calling you to action here to put on the new self. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, okay? So you see the command of, of go and do this, put on the new self. It, it's something you've got to go and do, but, but back to the original illustration, the work that you do here, putting on the new self, does not contribute one cent to the bill, as it were, okay? Instead, sanctification is the process of, of pursuing and doing good works. It's the tool that God uses more and more to form you into the image of Christ. It's sanctification. It's the pursuit of holiness where God teaches us how to be holy. You know, when I, I taught on this uh, uh, last year sometime, a year and a half ago, the illustration that I like to use, and I'll, I'll repeat it again, um, it's not unusual when my kids ask me uh, to help with their homework. Okay, 
Although the more and more they're, they're learning things that, that I don't understand. <laughs> and I can't, I can't help them. But uh, in some respects, they're, yeah, they're becoming smarter than me and, and I can't help them. But, but if, if they ever ask for my help, if I'm being honest, after a long day's work, yes, even here at the church sometimes we have long days at work, uh, I, the last thing I want to do is do homework, right? I finished doing homework a long time ago. I didn't think I'd ever have to do homework again. And if I'm being honest, doing homework sometimes sounds like the worst thing ever. No, thank you. I don't want to do it, all right? But I've told them that they can ask me for help anytime. And here's the danger of them asking me for help when I'm tired. Dad, I don't understand this. I don't know how to answer this. The danger there is, okay, let's see how quickly I can do their homework for them. Let's see how quickly we can get through this, right? So as much as I can help but I tell them, no, I'm not just going to do your homework for you. I'm not just going to do it for you, though I could, though I could. You try and figure out the answer first. Tell me the answer, and if you're wrong, I'll help steer you into the right direction, okay? When we speak of sanctification as being a work of God that he calls us into, it's just that. It's a work which we, 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 we cooperate with God. Both man and God are active in this process. It doesn't mean that the work of, of, of man is equal with that of the work, work of God, right? It isn't. Though we cooperate with God, God gets the credit for man's sanctification. It's still his, 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 uh, his work, okay? Just like me telling my son with his homework, I certainly could do it all. Uh, I could take the pencil from his hand, tell him to go watch TV, and I could fill out his paper in about two minutes, in most cases, right? But instead, what am I doing? Instead, I'm going to sit with him. Instead of two minutes, I sit with him for about 30 minutes or more. He's doing the work. I'm also coaching him. I'm pushing him and stretching him. Why am I doing that? Why am I doing that? Because I actually want him to learn. I want him to learn the subject. Philippians uh, 2, 12 to 13 says, Therefore... Doesn't say that. It says this. Therefore, my beloved, as you always, uh, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. You picture me doing homework with my son. Uh, not only now in my presence when I'm here with you, but even more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You see, we're told to do the homework ourselves, struggle with it, learn it, wrestle with it. It's, it's going to take longer to do this than you, you probably thought, but you need to know how to do it. So we're told to purify ourselves, but at the same time, we have to remember verse 13, which comes right next. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And see, that's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. We're told to do it ourselves, but we have a tutor who sits beside us and, and, and makes sure we get to where we ultimately need to be. E- even when I help my kids, when I help them do their homework, do you, think I, do you think they ever have to use the eraser? They certainly do. They certainly still, even though I'm standing right there and I'm watching them, yes, sometimes they have to go back. I said, no, no, go back and try that one again. And they'll have to use the eraser. They use it all the time. Plenty of mistakes are made, but I'm not going to let them get up from the chair until they get to the right place. See, this is the ultimate affirmation of sanctification. Sometimes it's going to feel like you're not getting it right. Sometimes it's going to feel like you're not growing in holiness. Sometimes it's going to feel like you're forcing it. Sometimes it's going to feel like you've worn your eraser down to the wood because you've made so many mistakes. But here's the ultimate affirmation, also from Philippians, first chapter, verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began 
a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to make sure our homework gets done to complete that, uh, that illustration, even though we're the ones with the pencil in our hands. Okay, And again, it's not a means of earning our salvation or paying for the bill. But, but it's a means of conforming us to the image of his son. Okay, that's, that's all I wanted to say about all that. So do you have any questions or thoughts or anything that needs clarification to this point? Or to that point, I'm done, I'm done. Yeah, hold on, I'm coming back to you. Passive obedience, again, remember, like in the word uh, passive to passion, which means the suffering of, of Jesus Christ. So the simplest answer to that was his passive obedience referred to his work on the cross. Okay? He suffered. He, he was, he was uh, uh, on the cross suffering for our sins. It would be a mistake to say that that's the only bit of passive obedience that he did. Because the mere fact that he was on this earth, where he was, at the right hand of God before he became God incarnate and came to dwell, even that is a measure of his passive obedience. He didn't have to do that. He was not obliged to do that. He came and the mere fact that he walked this earth and was subject to the curse of sin, that is part of his passive obedience. And, and how do you and I do that? We as Christians are called to, to suffer sometimes too. You know, if, if Jesus suffered, if God was most glorified in the, the suffering of Christ, and God is making us to be like Christ, you can better believe it. We'll, we'll go through our suffering too. And you'll suffer not because necessarily of, of a sin that you committed, uh, but because of, of the fact that we're in a, in a fallen world and we're being conformed to Christ. And sometimes those things are at odds. And so at odds. And so you will suffer in that regard. You will have passive obedience in that regard. Where again, it's active obedience is, is doing the right things. It's, it's, it's obeying God's law. Yeah, it's, uh, it's being called to holiness and pursuing holiness. Active. Active and passive. And again, passive, I feel like, gosh, I wish they had picked a different word back then, but they would have not known how what we mean by passive, you know, in this, this generation, too. So does that help answer that? Yeah. Someone else? Yeah, uh, Dave in the back. Do you want the mic? No. You got it? I'll repeat it. Go ahead. Um, I have a two-part question. <coughs> Two-part? Well, maybe unless you do need the mic. The, unless you're answering the first one, then it's the, the second question. Okay, I'm going to give you the mic because I want to get this on, uh, make sure we get this on, uh, on tape. Um, am I right in believing that God rewards us for our good works that he enables us to do through his Holy Spirit? So when we get to heaven, uh, we will be rewarded for those good works that we do here on earth? Yes, okay, so the, the Bible does speak of that, but I, I don't want you to be distracted by that. Uh, yes, are you rewarded for, for your good works? There's a natural moral or consequence to doing good. Uh, the, the things that God asks you to do that are in his command aren't just because, well, that's just what I feel like doing. No, there's a natural uh, rhythm to, to what God commands that in, inevitably leads to, to human flourishing. So on this, in this world, yes, you'll receive reward just by following his law. Now, in the next world, okay, will we somehow be rewarded for our good works? The, the scriptures do seem to, to allude to that. But, okay, you have to remember this. The ultimate reward is Christ himself. And uh, I, I used this illustration a long time ago, and hopefully it's not too outdated. But uh, many years ago, when Peyton Manning was still playing football, uh, there was a, a chance. He ended his career. He played his career with the Colts and then ultimately ended up on the, on the Broncos. But there was a chance 
that he might have come to the Tennessee Titans. And we were all excited about that. What if Peyton Manning could come to the Tennessee Titans? And so they were offering big contracts. And they said, he's going to get paid all kinds of money if he comes here. And then, I think it was Shoney's, that Shoney said, Peyton, if you come to Tennessee and play football here, you can have unlimited pancakes for life. <laughs> for life! Okay. How much do you think that moved the needle in terms of Peyton Manning's decision? I could have free pancakes for life. In other words, okay, that was a thing. It's a reward, but it's not the main thing. The main thing was the big contract. For us as Christians, the main thing, the main thing is Christ. The fact that you're going to be in the presence of, of Christ. You're going to see the face of God in Christ. Okay? What other reward could possibly compare to that? And so, in other words, I would say, yes, there's probably some measure of reward for good works. But again, they will all pale in comparison to the fact that we're in the presence of Christ. And so those aren't the kind of things that when we get to heaven, we'll be able to say, ah, check out all my jewels that I got here, right? <laughs> You're sitting in the presence of Christ. That's the ultimate reward. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does. Mm -hmm. Because of what he did, his righteousness is imputed to us, mm -hmm. and so all the good works that we're supposed to do, he did for us. That's right. Then I think it was confusing me of how there could be rewards if right. he fulfilled it perfectly, then what could we do beyond that? So and you've, you've, you've completed your own thought. You completed your own thought because, yes, whatever, whatever reward there is, again, it's not going to measure to the reward of Christ himself, which is the reward that he earned on our behalf. And even, even our good works, as we're, we're talking about up here, okay? Even the good works that we're doing are still ultimately his works that he's enabled us to do. So in other words, there's, there's no measure of being able to take credit for anything when we get to heaven. We can't say, but yeah, what I did there. Any reward that you have is ultimately as a byproduct of, of what Christ did for you. So it's ultimately his. So uh, maybe that answers your question, I hope. There's nothing that we're going to be able to tally up in heaven and say, well, look at all I've earned. There's no measure of that whatsoever. The reward is Christ himself. So, Great question, though. Um, I'm going to have to pull a plug on that. It's 1054. I know some of you got to get to the service. So let me close in prayer and, uh, and then we'll be dismissed. And as always, if there are ongoing questions that you have about any of this, I would love to talk to you in person or uh, through email, text message, whatever. I'm glad to do that. And uh, if, you, uh, if you want to even go to lunch, I'll pay the bill. <laughs> Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it's so marvelous and so wonderful and that it, uh, it teaches far beyond uh, even what we can grasp and, and, and imagine. But, but Father, you've given us something. You've given us something to, to, to dig into and mine and, and find treasure in, and we'll never exhaust that. Uh, and so I thank you for that. Uh, let, let it again, once again, let it change us. Let it make us into different people so that uh, we can take that hope to a, a lost and dying world that so desperately needs it. We thank you for your word, and it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Go in God's peace.